Why are so many inmates dying in Broward County's lockups? Hialeah cracks down on using RVs for affordable housing, and the Cuba debate shifts to the private sector. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll examine a rash of inmate deaths and suicides in Broward County's jail facilities, 21 fatalities since 2021. Is it a symptom of Florida's overall corrections crisis? We'll also look at the city of Hialeah's vote this week to stop the rental of recreational vehicles as residences and what it says about our affordable housing crisis. And we'll discuss the new debate about the Cuba crisis. But this time it's not about communism, it's about capitalism. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. On Monday, Joseph Kirk, a 34-year-old inmate in the Broward County's main jail in Fort Lauderdale, died at the facility's hospital. Kirk was being held on a misdemeanor charge in the main jail's detox unit. The Broward Public Defender's Office says his death probably resulted from taking smuggled drugs or improper detox, excuse me, detox pr- protocols. Whatever the cause, Kirk was the 21st inmate to die in a Broward lockup in less than three years, and he was the third fatality in the past month. One of those deaths was a suicide by hanging in a cell. Another involved an inmate being beaten by a cellmate. Calls for reform and increased staffing and resources for Broward's four jail facilities are on the rise now, but so are the warnings that this is just a reflection of the dysfunctional prison system in Florida as a whole, which a recent report says needs as much as $12 billion in new funds over the next two decades to keep them crumbling all from crumbling altogether. How can we improve Broward's and Florida's troubled corrections facilities and prevent more inmate deaths. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Broward County Sheriff Gregory Tony. Sheriff Tony, we appreciate you giving us some of your time today. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Good afternoon, and thanks for having me on. Also with us is WLRN's Broward County reporter, Gerard Albert III. Also great to have you on, Gerard. Are you there, Gerard? Well, we'll get back to him in a second. Thanks, Tim. Sheriff Tony, as I mentioned, 21 inmate deaths in Broward County jail facilities since 2021. Sheriff, what to your mind does that indicate about Broward's jail system, especially the county's main jail in Fort Lauderdale, and what needs to be done at this point? Yeah, if you don't mind, I think it's important for our listeners to get a little bit more background about what the organization, uh, Department of Detention, our jail system looks like. Okay, um, that's, that's, 13th, that's, what I, that's what I wanted to get at, sure. Perfect. So we're the 13th largest jail system operating here in the United States, um, where we have a bed space or occupation um, for inmates where it's about 4,500 inmates per year. Um, we typically process anywhere between 44,000 inmates every single year going into our jail system. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been fortunate and blessed to serve our community now as the uh, sheriff for five years. I'm in my sixth year. And what I've been able to analyze and look at here, um, the issue that we're facing within our jails, specifically here in Broward County, but echoing across the country and in the state, is we have become the de facto mental health institute here in this county, and it's continuing across the state, 
and it echoes across the United States. We have not placed, meaning we as a society, a greater emphasis on getting people with mental health issues out of jail and getting them into services that they need. Yeah. And, um, and I've, no, I'm sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. And I've been sounding this alarm now for five years. Um, I'm a little unique, probably, than most sheriffs. Um, I have a background in academics. Uh, I've been a college professor for almost 15 years now. I'm finishing my doctorate degree in 30 days. And part of my dissertation has been specifically looking at the impact of mental health issues in our community. Yeah. And I and I do I do want to get to that um, because sure. that is you're, you're right. Very, very important issue uh, in this discussion we're having. Uh, but, Sheriff, I first want to read the start of a letter here that Broward Public Defender Gordon Weeks wrote to you late last month that WLRN has obtained. In that okay. letter, he urges you to, quote, engage and implement outside oversight as it pertains to abuse, medical neglect and conditions of confinement within the jails of Broward County. Uh, Mr. Weeks goes on to assert that, quote, vulnerable populations have been repeatedly overlooked and forced to suffer in the jails, which raises concerns about the culture and the climate. Sheriff, do you agree with the public defender that at this point outside oversight is needed? No, I don't. It's not an outside oversight issue here. OK, I'll, I'll address some of the comments in his letter. But, you know, keep in mind, we do internal investigations anytime we have an in-custody death. So I can't dive into all the details, but what I will say is the letter you received is one of probably 20 that I've received over the last five years in office from Mr. Weeks, where assertions were made uh, about the nature of the facility in itself or the lack of personnel or the quality of care. And every single one of those investigations has proven differently from his statements. Mm -hmm. The greater issue, and Mr. Weeks was in my office just yesterday, that we both concur and agree upon is that the mental health, uh, mental health issue in our community and the lack of resources is forcing more people to go into jail. You addressed it, Mr. Uh, Week's letter, and I want to share part of a letter that I sent out um, to all our stakeholders, our chief judge, our state attorney, and everything else. Back in 2008, we did an analysis where we had over 5,300 plus inmates in custody. 25% of those inmates were receiving mental health services. I did a new research analysis just last year to see if there was any dent in that system. And you know what? It hasn't changed. It's gotten worse. We reduced the inmate population down to 3,500, but now 42% of them that are in custody suffer from or are receiving mental health services. Okay. I, my focal point has been changing the paradigm here and getting our stakeholders, our community government, and everyone else to start investing into mental health facilities so that we don't have to be right. the last place to take these individuals. Gerard, the Gerard Albert III, I, I, I want to move exactly to that issue that the, the sheriff is bringing up, uh, because earlier this week, in response to this problem, the Broward County Commission approved a million-dollar proposal from the Broward Behavioral Health Coalition to improve how the county correction system deals with people arrested for nonviolent felonies who have mental health or substance abuse issues. Many of the 21 deaths we're talking about here in, uh, involved inmates who fall into that category. And the county public defender has said conditions, for example, in the Broward Main Jail's detox unit are especially bad. Gerard, is that focus now of efforts to is that the focus to fix this crisis that we're talking about, or is the problem in your reporting broader than that? Well, it's definitely going to help where they're trying to. Um, arrest diversion, whether it be pre-arrest diversion or post-arrest diversion, 
which is what they're pitching here, uh, is a good thing. Uh, and, and can you just explain uh, really quickly for our readers, uh, our listeners, uh, Gerard, when you say post-arrest diversion, that, that refers specifically to what exactly? Well, the person would be arrested and then would have to qualify for this program uh, where instead of going to jail, they would go to uh, right. a treatment facility. Right. Right. Um, so arrest diversion programs around the country and around the state have been proven conservative counties, liberal counties. They've been proven to work and to have success rates on recidivism, on, on people not getting arrested again. Um, but they need to be implemented well, um, and people have to agree to enter these programs and qualify for them. This program, like you said, is for people who have uh, nonviolent felonies and uh, may, as most pre-arrest or post-arrest diversion programs go, may, qualify, uh, may require them to not have any previous convictions or be violating a parole or things like that. Right. Um, and again, if it's implemented well, I think can 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 help and take some of the strain mm -hmm. off the jail, which is the county's largest mental health facility. Yeah. Um, but right now it's 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 equipped to handle about 200 people. Sheriff, let me put that same question to you. The most recent inmate to die at the Broward County Main Jail, as I mentioned, Joseph Kirk, himself had been arrested on a nonviolent charge, and he was in the detox unit. Do you think this new funding for the Broward Behavioral Health Coalition efforts will be enough to address this issue, or does more need to be done? Absolutely not. Um, it, that figure, and I want to put this in, in context, why I'm so adamantly opposed to thinking that a million dollars is going to make a dent in this issue. We spend $117 million every year focusing on keeping these people in custody. And we're putting a, a million dollars forward in a project to think that that's going to make a significant difference. This has been part of the argument, so to speak, that I've had with my colleagues at the county commission. Mm -hmm. When I first accepted command of this office, Tim, back in 2019, and I did an analysis on our budget, I recognized that $300 million of this billion-dollar budget was being spent to maintain the jail i.e. keep people in custody. And I posed a question to my colleagues. I said, if we're spending $300 million a year to keep them in, how many millions of dollars are we spending to keep them out? Right. And so far that answer has been a million dollars. Okay. So we have to change the infrastructure here All right. and not create more programs. The goal should be having checks and balances and a processing center that can divert these individuals so that they never step into a jail and they go to a mental health facility that can track, okay. monitor, issue the necessary medications and psychological evaluations. All right. That's not expertise. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking with Broward County Sheriff Gregory Tony about the rash of recent inmate deaths in Broward County jails and the need to improve corrections facilities across Florida. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Uh, Sheriff Tony, I want to get to that point you were just raising about the uh, sometimes heated discussions you and the Broward Commission have had about resources, especially staffing. The Broward Main Jail, according to the County Public Defender's Office, is 15 percent understaffed. And it says that's a big factor in incidents like the beating inmate Gennard Geffrard received from a cellmate that likely resulted in his death last month. The cellmate himself has mental health issues. Giffard's death did result in administrative investigative leave uh, for two jail officials. But why is jail understaffing such a serious problem in Broward? 
I think the understaffing issue is very similar to an issue I had with communications, which we had to rectify, which is the salaries for our uh, deputies have not been competitive. And so we're losing talented individuals to vacate for other opportunities. Some will lateral internally within the organization. Some will you know, take off and join the federal government in different capacities. We have about 180 different plus vacancies in terms of our sworn deputy personnel in the jail. But the vacancy issue does not impact the global issue of that the individuals that are in that jail, many of them, I think we're at about 48 to 50% from my last analysis are actually receiving mental health uh, services. That is not something that's a manpower issue. We don't have the right processing and infrastructure so that we don't even need that many deputies if we don't have that many people in custody right. that are suffering from mental illness. Right. Gerard Albert III, what, what are the Broward County Commission and county government critics, for that matter, saying about problems like jail understaffing, especially, for example, the fact that video surveillance equipment apparently captured last month's attack on inmate Giffard, but no deputy there intervened. What, what do they feel are the sources of this problem and its solutions? Uh, well, it's things, criticisms that they've been putting up for years. Um, you know, this has been a problem in Broward County jails for years. Um, you know, I think a lot of it can be summed up in, in uh, Public Defender Weeks's letter where there's a, a desire for more transparency to see um, outside investigations done, to see third party investigations done, to see um, the internal reports from the sheriff's office uh, those investigations be closed and become public, um, even for video surveillance to uh, become public after it's been uh, redacted in the necessary way to to uh, ensure security of everybody involved. Mm -hmm. That's mainly the the critiques that have been repetitively uh, heard. Mm -hmm. Sheriff Tony, I want to take a step back here and ask you what you feel are the larger structural problems that not only the Broward County correction system is facing, but what the Florida system in general is facing. Do you feel that Broward's issues reflect the corrections dysfunctions we're seeing across the state, especially since, as I mentioned at the outset, a recent consultant study has warned the state system needs billions of dollars worth of improvements and reforms? Well, I'll start, if, I, if you don't mind, I just want to uh, clarify something that uh, Jared had mentioned okay. um, about the internal processing components. We conduct thorough investigations uh, on every single incident, and every single one of those investigations were closed are public records per law. So the element of transparency that is projected in Mr. Week's letter is just a false narrative that creates fear mongering. Okay. Every single investigation is conducted thoroughly. And in the last five years that I've been here, I've had to terminate 75 employees for misconduct, which is the most in the history of this agency. So we are accountable. We are transparent. To All your right. question about the global issues in the state of Florida in terms of Florida corrections, I am very uh, opposed to the narrative that we need more jails, that we need more prisons. That is not where we need to be invested. We've had that term um, in our history in this country where we went to privatization and creating more jails and more uh, prisons across this country, and a lot of people had benefited financially in the private sector, but it did nothing to help recidivism. It did nothing to reduce the mental health population. My focal point is if I'm advocating for anything, which I am, my advocacy is towards what we need to do here in Broward County is to develop enough critical infrastructures, a mental health facility that can house hundreds of inmates, um, or excuse me, house hundreds of people with mental illness versus having them go through our jail system. 
If we can create that model here and have success being the 13th largest jail system in the United States, I'm most certain that we can rep replicate that throughout the entire state of Florida without having to invest billions of dollars in building more jails. Mm -hmm. Gerard, I want to go back to something Sheriff Tony mentioned about uh, the transparency of investigations into these incidents like inmate deaths in Broward County. I know that you had mentioned in your reporting you had heard criticism of about the thoroughness, let's say, and the transparency of investigations into incidents like this. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to to relate regarding that? Um, there's not much. I, I, okay. I know that. Yeah. Uh, we seem to have lost Gerard there. Sorry, still here. Okay, sorry. Um, okay, so so Gerard, then what what do you think then? Uh, it, it, when we watch the Broward jails crisis closely, um, what is this a problem common across the state, or or do critics feel that Broward has become an especially troublesome case in this regard, in and of itself? Well, it's a good example of, of, a, of a larger issue, and, and it's been repeated over and over, but I'll repeat it again that the jails in most counties, especially in Broward, is the county's largest mental health facility. Um, yeah. And there are things that the Broward jails do well. Um, I'll, I'll cite a report um, that was tied to federal uh, a federal lawsuit against the Broward jails that has been going on for four decades. And the report, you know, does commend Broward jails, uh, as, as, like I said, as recent as 2023 on things they do well, like when mm -hmm. they take a person in, they get their medical records. Right. Gerard, um, we just got they, about uh, 15 or 20 seconds here to wrap up if you could. Sorry, they're administering their meds, but they, the, the report cites the staffing issues, the, the, the lack yeah. of self-monitoring and performance standards, and they, they recommend those things in the report. Right. Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward County reporter. We were also speaking with Broward County Sheriff Gregory Tony. Gentlemen, thank you very much, especially you, Sheriff Tony, for giving us your time today. Uh, thank you both. And Jared, uh, if we ever get a chance to communicate and work more on something, give me a call. Take care, gentlemen. Thank you, sir. Still to come, Hialeah's putting a stop to renting out RVs as affordable housing. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This week, the Hialeah City Council put its foot down. It voted to clamp down on residents renting out recreational vehicles, or RVs, on their properties as pseudo-apartments. You can find those RVs listed online as one-bedroom units for about $1,200 a month. That's less than half the average one-bedroom rent in Miami-Dade County, and that's the whole point. In working in middle-class communities like Hialeah, these days the RV option can often be the only option. That doesn't mean Hialeah isn't justified in curbing the practice. Mayor Esteban Bovo warned the rampant RV rentals threatened to make the city look like, quote, the Wild West. And the safety, sanitation, noise, and aesthetic issues are real. But so is Miami-Dade County's affordable housing crisis. And, and one hope is that Hialeah's vote this week will make that issue more urgent. 
What do you think about the Hialeah controversy and what it says about the housing situation here? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio is WLRN's local government accountability reporter, Joshua Ceballos, who's been following this story. We're also expecting to also join us in the studio here, Hialeah City Councilman and Council President, Jesus Tundidor, uh, but he's running a little late. But as I said, we do have Josh Ceballos with us here. Thank you very much, Josh, for being here. Happy to be here, Tim. Now, let me start with this fact, which is to remind people that renting out an RV as a residence on property in a residential area had already been illegal in Hialeah since 2007, right? Yeah, almost 20 years. It's, yeah. it's already been on the books as illegal to do that. So what's the difference between then and now? How does this new measure, this new ordinance the council approved this week, get tougher on people who are doing this? Yeah, so it... it Basically, what this new item does is it adds new restrictions for how you can park uh, an RV at your property. Now you can only park one RV. Um, you can only park it um, perpendicular to the sidewalk, so it can't be in your backyard. It right. has to be uh, visible in the front yard, and you also have to register it with the city right. um, with an affidavit that says... Uh, I will not be renting this out as as a living. Unit. And there's also stronger enforcement component to this too, is there not? Yeah. So there's additional fines um, if yeah. you if you break any of these rules about where you can park the RV, how many RVs you can park, and I think what Councilman Tunidor uh, was really hoping for with these extra little rules is to make it easier to find apartment rentals. Because something that he told me in an interview was okay. Um, someone might see an RV in the backyard and the city doesn't know necessarily if they're renting it out as an apartment because they can't go in and look unless there's a violation. Okay. Now, if they see two RVs in someone's backyard, they can be like, oh, that's a violation. We can check it. Look, it's a living unit. Right. Now, remind us, Josh, what were the main problems of this practice of renting out RVs as residences that was, you know, the, the problems this was causing for Hialeah and its conventional residence that the council, you know, took upon itself this week to try to address. You mentioned at the, uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, Councilman Tundidor himself mentioned at the council meeting this week that safety is the paramount concern. What, what, what were the big factors that they were raising? Yeah, so I mean, the, the council um, claimed that they, they had heard from residents that there were, say, a, a neighbor had two or three RVs in their backyard and they were renting out to, to single men. And then those men were looking over their fence uh, at uh, at the person, the resident's backyard, and there was safety concerns there. Um, I think there's also concerns about connecting these RVs to the city sewer system uh -huh. without that being right. On there record. are sanitation concerns, San then, sanitation yeah. concerns, and in electricity and and these things where it's kind of a it's a black market rig. You know, you're hooking mm -hmm. up to the water line and living as an extra unit when that's not on the city's books. Now, do we have any idea how widespread this phenomenon is? in Hialeah or in Miami-Dade County for that matter or there's just no figures out there as to how many people are doing this yeah there's not really good hard data on this as to how many there are but I, I think we've seen it become more prevalent in the past few years after the pandemic as our housing crisis has kind of ramped up and I know you can look on uh 
on Facebook Marketplace right. for <laughs> for a, a one bedroom apartment. And if you look at the photos in, in on Facebook Marketplace for Hialeah, a lot of them are, are are RVs, and you can tell it's what it says one bed, one bath for a twelve hundred. Right. I mean, it's a good deal if you can get it. Right. And if you look in Miami Dade County in general for a one bedroom apartment, you're talking about closer to three thousand dollars a month. <sighs> Don't remind me. Tim. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. sorry. Sorry about that. Um, now look, even as we mentioned, even though this has been illegal in Hialeah for seventeen years, it feels as though Hialeah residents themselves really didn't take that fact too seriously, obviously. Why do you feel, Josh, that they were just largely ignoring the regulation for so long? Okay, listen, so I, a point that was made at, at the city council meeting is that um, Hialeah has this perception of, of the Wild West yeah. where you know you can get away with a lot of things. And so I, I grew up there, and I think that's that's kind of true. Like, there is a perception that you can get away with certain things in Hialeah that you can't get away with elsewhere because there's just... People, not as many people paying attention, maybe, or a lot of the population is coming from Cuba and other Latin American countries, and maybe right. they just don't know what the law is, and they like I, uh, I need an efficiency, or I need I need to put up my cousin who who's just come in, and uh, you know, so here we go, and it doesn't matter. I, I think they're just not familiar with the laws. Yeah, I, I think you raise a good point. Is it reasonable to assume that this may have something to do with the recent and large influx of Cuban migrants arriving here? Many, if not most of whom, end up in Hialeah, which is Miami-Dade County's largest Cuban enclave. Yeah, I think that's reasonable to assume. Uh, we Again, there's not really hard data on that, but Hialeah is a magnet for a lot of the Cuban migrants. I mean, they make up um, so much of the population of the city. So with this large influx of population, we just there's just not enough supply to, to yeah. meet the needs for those people, especially supply at an affordable range. A lot of the development that's going on in Hialeah right now is luxury development, like you said, two $3,000. Right, and that's the image people like Mayor Bovo want to project. I mean, you, you mentioned his, his concerns about uh, you know, Hialeah getting this Wild West. Um, I think even somebody in Spanish mentioned the una reputación tercermundialista, which means kind of a third world reputation that was mentioned at the council meeting. Um, aesthetics are mm -hmm. also a big factor here, right? Yeah, I think what the new count with the council and what Mayor Bovo are really trying to push is they're trying to push Hylia into the into the future. They want to make an entertainment district. They want to make uh, transit oriented development and, and a lot of these luxury apartments. They want new new breath and new life to come into the city. And, you know, whether it, they want it to or not. That's kind of pushing out some of the older population that may not be able to afford that. All right. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about Hialeah's decision to crack down on renting RVs as residences and how our affordable housing crisis has created this problem. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Josh, let's follow up on, on what we were discussing earlier regarding that issue, the, the affordable housing, and, and that the reason why this practice of renting large recreational vehicles as a cheaper form of housing has become so popular in Miami-Dade communities like Hialeah. As I mentioned at the outset, a person can rent an RV as a residence on someone else's property for usually less than half what they'd pay to rent a one-bedroom apartment here. What does that say about the affordable housing crisis we're dealing with here now? I mean, Tim, for some people, it's just it's just really impossible to find anything. And it's not it's not a situation where people aren't hardworking and, and are are just trying to look for some kind of social service or some kind of help. They are working a job and they cannot afford any of the stuff that's out there. And Hialeah was traditionally this working class community. So many of the people in Hialeah and in the neighborhoods where I grew up 
um, are older people, people on fixed incomes who were able to get by on, on the on the small rents in Hialeah. Yeah. And that's that's becoming that's fading away. Very, right. very as you quickly. said, Hialeah is evolving. It's into, evolving. Into, and, and, and I don't want to use the word gentrification or no. something like that, but it is evolving into the kind of community that people want there. And, and the, one of the consequences is you're going to be paying higher rents. Yes. Um, I mean, a, a couple of years ago, there was a huge develop, luxury housing development in, in East Hialeah that went up called uh, Shoma Village. And on their website, they were calling Hialeah the Brooklyn of Miami. Right. And um, I think that's kind of what the city's kind of pushing for. They right. want this this younger, this uh, you know professional class of people who mm-hmm. can afford higher rents to be moving into the city. We've got Jordan from Pompano Beach on the line. He has uh, a thoughts on this. Jordan, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. You're on the air. Good afternoon, sir. I just first want to tell you how much I love your station. Thanks to you, my Grateful Dead and Rolling Stone CDs. Don't get any action anymore. Well, but, <laughs> as um, a Grateful Dead fan myself, I, I want to tell you how much we appreciate listeners like you, Jordan. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate your show. Sir, I just want to tell you, I am a journalist, and I used to write for the RV Advisor. And that was a couple of years ago. And I would write a lot of articles about how uh, communities like San Francisco and Seattle were doing similar bans on RVs. And I got the impression that the, I don't want to say, eh, probably the only reason these were, in fact, were to force people to pay the exorbitant, because those are the highest real real estate markets in the country, and to force them to to pay those properties. So That's... Um, I think I think it's kind of a shame that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people looking for housing have one less opportunity. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point, Jordan. Thanks for bring, bringing that up, that maybe there are, Business pressures here too. A lot of a lot of uh, landlords don't like seeing this because it, uh, it it reduces the amount of people, the number of people coming to them to pay their rents. Is right. that Josh? Yeah, and and I think there's also there's also aesthetic concerns, which um, you know some people might poo-poo that, but I think it's real concerns that the council has that you know seeing three RVs parked in somebody's backyard, it it kind of makes the neighborhood look a little bit. Uh, different. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think Jordan brings up a good point. It's, you know, these people are trying to live in Hialeah and they just can't afford the, the RV is is what they can afford. Um, and obviously there are safety concerns, there's sanitation concerns. But I think there are there are real um, human concerns about what options these people have. Now, we have Doris from Hialeah itself, and she brings up a point that we want to sort of transition here to as well. She wants to know what are politicians doing to provide alternative housing for these people. Doris, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. You're on the air. Thank you very much. What I would actually like to know is how they found the time to have a meeting. Mind you, I live in Hialeah. I do not think this is appropriate. I don't think it's appropriate to have, you know, a, a trailer in your in, in your backyard. Obviously, we wouldn't want that. But if the politicians are able to schedule meetings to address this, why are they not scheduling meetings to also address the increase in property taxes, the incredible increase in, um, you know, in, um, in insurance rates. If that was being addressed, people would not be pushed to have to do these things. It is unsafe. It is obviously not visually appealing, but it's, it's desperation that is pushing people to have to do these kind of things. Okay. Why are they not scheduling meetings to mm-hmm. address 
those other things. Well, we would have liked to have had Councilman Jesus Tundidor on with us today to answer a question like that, Doris. Unfortunately, he has run into an issue and is not able to join us in the studio, so we apologize for that. But we do have Joshua Ceballos here, and she brings up a point that I said we wanted to transition to here in the conversation, which brings up that one of the Hialeah Council members who voted against the RV rental crackdown was Angelica Pacheco. Mm -hmm. And one of her big reasons for that no vote was a concern about people being displaced from their homes as a result of this new ordinance. What, if any, contingencies does Hialeah, Josh, have planned for people who might find themselves homeless now as a result of this prohibition on RV rentals? Right. So that, yeah, Angelica Pacheco did bring that up. She said that she she had been reached out to by several elderly residents who had who were living in RVs and, and were concerned about being displaced. And basically what the council said is as when this enforcement happens, um, as the city comes in and says, you need to vacate this RV within 60 days, they'll give them a pamphlet that shows them services that they can reach out to either with mm -hmm. the city or with the county. But I think Mayor Bovo was quick to say, you know, the county has plenty of resources for homeless assistance and housing assistance. Go to them. And he's very and this is something that he said in the past. He's against creating what he calls social programs, mm -hmm. um, which he says uh, cannot be funded in perpetuity and that they are unsustainable. Um so basically, they were saying, go to the county if you need homeless and rental assistance, although I think the city does have some services um, that you can reach out to. But uh, Doris, I, I would definitely recommend reaching out to your council member and um, and finding out more. Now, Josh, are other communities in Miami-Dade facing any similar issues like this? And frankly, if Hialeah does crack down on this, as, as they are now, do you see people going to maybe other nearby municipalities that are perhaps more lenient about renting out RVs as residences? Will, will they uh, essentially uh, migrate from Hialeah? Right. So I think we're, I think the whole county is dealing with, with issues like this. And, the, and I know the county was trying to crack down more on efficiencies, which is another form of sort of like black market housing. Um, something that uh, Councilman Tundidor said during the meeting was that, and I don't know how true this is, he said that he spoke with someone from Opalaka mm -hmm. who said that they might be allowing trailers uh, to be parked in, in houses, um, in properties, so that maybe people from Hialeah could move to Opalaka. That's something that he said from the dais. And and I should I should remind people, Opalaka has its own severe uh, affordable housing situation, right? Yes. I think, I mean, as, as we've all seen, it's the the places that people can go are getting fewer and fewer and, uh, and further between um but as it gets harder as we get squeezed by these rental prices i think people are going to keep looking for places to go until there's there's none left All right joshua ceballos is wlrn's local government accountability reporter joshua thanks very much for helping us understand this 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 issue much better we really appreciate it always a pleasure tim thank you still to come is cuban capitalism real or a myth this is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We, of course, never stop arguing about Cuba here in Miami, but lately the debate isn't so much about Cuban communism, but rather Cuban capitalism. As you've probably heard, the island is suffering economic collapse, and the only thing that seems to be working there is the fledgling private sector. As a result, a lot of folks think the U.S. should be doing more to promote and invest with Cuba's private entrepreneurs, especially since they seem a rare instance of independence from Cuba's dictatorship.
But a lot of other folks are saying, hold on. They argue Cuba's private sector is a myth, a scheme to lure cash onto the island in order to help the regime survive. They insist Cuba's private businesses, known by the Spanish acronym MIPIMES, which stands for Micro, Small, and Medium Enterprises, are just fronts for the dictatorship. So they're opposed to the Biden administration's plan to give those businesses things like access to the U.S. financial system, even if they're vetted and found to have no links to the regime. Do you think Cuba's capitalists are a myth or a potential engine for democratization? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio is former Miami Congressman Joe Garcia, a Cuban-American Democrat. He argues Cuba's private entrepreneurs are the real deal, and he advises Americans today on how to engage them. Welcome, Congressman. It's a pleasure to be here, Tim. Thank you for having me. I want to start with a prominent voice from the other side of this debate, Miami Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar, a Cuban-American Republican. Here is the basic message she conveyed at her subcommittee hearing last week where she insisted the Cuban private sector, sector is a, quote, myth. Based on the info that we have coming from Havana and from Cuba, those who have had an easy, easy path to opening a business like this one are the children of the oppressors or the oppressors themselves. Unfortunately, this smells like a new scheme from the regime who is desperate for millions of dollars to violate the American embargo. As you know, the Cuban regime is a master of disguise. So, Congressman, what do you feel is the key flaw in Congresswoman Salazar's assertion that Cuba's private businesses, its MIPIMES, are just a front for propping up Cuba's communist di dictatorship? Look, I, 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 I respect the congresswoman, but it, it's, it, it falls into the classic problem that you have, that uh, you know nothing that comes from Cuba can be good, right? And, and so the possibility that we may be winning for the first time ever should be something that should inspire us. Uh, you know, I, I knew Jorge Mas quite well. If I would have said to him that there are fledgling thousands of enterprises that are, are burgeoning throughout Cuba, and everyone can see them. These are not, yeah. you know, the, the leaders of, of the regime don't have 10,000 kids running this stuff. This is These are real entrepreneurs that are making a difference, and they are making a difference precisely in a place and a thing which Miami understands quite well, which is business. And it's an international uh, uh, language that we can speak. It's a commonality we begin to work through. And I, and I think, uh, you know, too often we, we get used to losing and we expect that everything's a trap. And so then when we see things flourish that could truly make a difference, not only in Cuba, but in Miami, we, we tend to turn a blind eye or criticize it as part of the regime and snuff it out. If the Cuban government can't snuff it out, don't worry, we will. Well, one of the other arguments, I think, they don't often express this this explicitly, but I think one of their arguments is, look, this is the not the moment to be sort of throwing money to the island, even if it is for genuine private entrepreneurs, because look, the the economy is about to collapse, and therefore that means the regime is about to collapse too. So, Tim, what, what's we, the flaw we, in that you, argument? You and I have been here for a very long time, I, most of my entire life, and the regime has been on its last legs for 60 plus years, and we've been always expecting the next day. But let's think that through. What does that collapse look like? Does Miami, one of the most thriving and important cities in the United States, need Haiti? another Haiti, 90 miles away. 
And the reality is, what is what happens when it collapses? Do does that mean that somehow uh, democracy springs forth and we have Switzerland ninety miles from the United States, or what? Or do we have a massive influx of refugees, which the previous program was a central part of it? Listen, yeah. New York is reeling because they have sixty thousand refugees that have moved here. Cubans have come to Miami, almost half a million in the last two and a half years. Ninety percent of those come to our community. We are experiencing that pressure right now. Right. Imagine if it explodes. Well, let's go back to the private sector to discussion then. Congresswoman Salazar's argument is, of course, the argument of the more hardline Cuban exile leadership here in Miami. Their logic is that because nothing exists in Cuba independent of the totalitarian regime there, the private sector itself cannot be considered independent of the regime. And therefore, any engagement or investment the U.S. offers that private sector is simply a form of aid for that regime. I hope I explained that correctly. Again, what do you consider the flaw in that logic? Well, I remember when that logic was expressed about dissidents. There are no dissidents in Cuba because if there are dissidents in Cuba, the Cuban regime would destroy them and they wouldn't exist. We matured. We realized that there were voices crying for help and we tried to help them. And the reality is here we see something developing which we've never seen before. And it's probably developing as a response to the to the economic crisis that the country is going for. Mm -hmm. This is an area where we are particularly adept and the communist government is particularly poor at it. It gives us an opportunity to help our brothers and sisters there. And let me, let me give you an example, Tim. I brought 70 entrepreneurs. Some of them came with their families. None of them stayed. Mm -hmm. What we know is that when Cubans taste Miami, they tend to stay. These folks went, went back, back because right. they see a future in their homeland. Okay. They see opportunity. And that's exactly what we should inspire. Listen, I'm not saying we should be helping the Cuban government, but but what I am saying is when we find forces of independence, forces that can give us a new road, a new way mm -hmm. forward, we should uh, sponsor them, help them, invest in them. Now, the Biden administration allows these days for Cuban private businesses to receive imported goods from mm -hmm. the U.S. and for U.S. investors to help fund Cuban private businesses. And it insists it, it is vetting those private businesses to make sure they are not, as Congresswoman Salazar asserts, just a front for Cuban Communist Party members. In your experience working with these MIPIMES, are you confident that most, if not just about all of the almost 10,000 of them operating in Cuba now, legally, are genuinely independent of the regime? Yes. Why? <laughs> because I meet them. I meet their families. I'm with them. Tim, that doesn't mean that some of them aren't related to people in the Cuban government. Of course they are, because it's part of the of a country that is owned by the government. What I do know is 35% of employees today in Cuba, the workforce, is working for PIMAs or independent mm -hmm. um, uh, companies, uh, right. independent businesses, uh, pri privately owned. This is an amazing accomplishment. This is something that we we should see ourselves as beneficiaries of having inspired this. And we're the only ones, South Florida, that can make a difference. And we should there. also mention that the regime itself has been putting more restrictions, slapping oh, I, more restrictions than trying to rip. The, the regime itself seems spooked. No, of course by, they are. By, by the private sector. The, the yeah. whole point is, if they're part of the regime, why is the regime trying to hurt them? Or why is the regime regulating them in ways 
that no one would do if they really want this to flourish. And I, I obviously think it's because of mismanagement and lack of understanding of the long-term benefits of capitalism that communists have. But the reality is here they are and they are struggling. And what we shouldn't do is make them have to struggle against bureaucracy, inefficiency, and communism. And then on top well, of that, uh, fight against the political leadership in South Florida. Speaking of bureaucracy, if they are genuinely independent, if that's the case, should Congress then be approving uh, the bending of the U.S. economic embargo against Cuba a bit and, and letting those Cuban private entrepreneurs have access to the U.S. banking system so they can enjoy the same, say, cash flow any private enterprise needs to thrive. Absolutely. Those are part of the rules that are written into the codification of dealing with Cuba. It's called calibrated responses mm -hmm. to, the, to, the, to what goes on in Cuba. If things go our way or we see opportunity to help the Cuban society develop in a way that is more coherent with the modern uh, free democratic state, we should help them. We should incentivize that movement. And this is one of those examples. We have Ian on the line from Coral Gables, and he's got his perspective about not just Cuba, but other countries in this situation. Ian, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Hi, just a comment based on uh, something you said during the introduction. Um, you know, something like 30 percent of Boeing is like entirely federal U.S. government contracts. And, you know, when the UAE, not the best country, buys from Boeing, uh, people aren't really saying that, you know, it's foreign interference. Um, and also, you know, Cuba's uh, right next door to us, and we're like the best economy in the world. I don't see why uh, it's not a good incentive for them to get their stuff together if, uh, you know, we open up a little bit. Okay. Thanks, Ian. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're discussing the debate about whether Cuba's fledgling private sector is a reality or a myth. I'm speaking with former Miami Congressman Joe Garcia. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Congressman, let's go back to Miami Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar at her subcommittee hearing last week in which she insisted the Cuban private sector is a, quote, myth and a scheme by the Cuban regime to cadge U.S. investment dollars. Toward the end of that hearing, she seemed to soften her stance, and she told the State Department's Eric Jacobstein, the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Western Hemisphere Bureau, the following. You and I were on the same page, so my question to you is this. How can we help you? How can we help this administration to really help those small business owners in Cuba, I repeat, that have no no contact or connections with the regime in order to open up a, a good store if they want to or to have their own uh, privately owned business. Okay, she seemed to be saying there that she does allow for the possibility that there could be private businesses in Cuba that aren't linked to the regime and therefore do merit U.S. help, maybe even access to the U.S. financial system. How did, how did you interpret that last remark that Salazar made. I, I took it as, a, as, as an opportunity. I, I've known Maria Elvira since college. Uh, and uh, so at the end of the hearing, I went up and shook her hand. And she said, listen, I, I know 50 people who are, trying, who are dissidents who want to open businesses and aren't allowed. I said, Maria Elvira, give me their names. I'll visit them in Cuba. And if I can help them, I'll help them. But will you agree to meet with some? 
to which she said, of course, I'll meet with the one of the right. these businesses if you ring them. Unfortunately, I, I thanked her on, t- on Twitter and said I'm very appreciative. Interestingly enough, uh, people from Cuba attacked me for doing that. So <laughs> once again, these, these folks are in crossfire. And then right. a few days later, when she was questioned about this by the Miami Herald, she said uh, she called them these so-called private yeah, businesses. Yeah, I, I should mention that I did follow up with Congresswoman Salazar's office this week to get some clarification. And the Congresswoman sent me the following. She said, quote, the Biden administration failed to prove that there are small businesses that are truly independent from the regime until Cuba allows for business owners to sue the government for expropriation and other government abuses like rule abiding democratic countries do. It's hard to believe that there is a free and fair business sector on the island. So she's essentially saying that if she thought the Biden administration could offer her proof of genuinely independent private enterprises in Cuba, she'd support helping them. But the Biden administration hasn't yet shown her that proof. Do you get the feeling that perhaps she felt she needed to back off her final remarks at last week's hearing because it might have contradicted, again, that hardline Cuban exile line about the Cuban private sector? Well, look, I'm not going to uh, ascribe motives to what she did, but it's unfortunate what she did. But look, these are real things. Uh, Tim, I'm, I, I know you've met some of them. There, there are hundreds that have visited Miami. They imported over a billion dollars last year. They're, they're more than half of the, the, the Cuban imports in the country right now. Most of that came from the United States. They are the people who are financing this, Tim, are the people who live in Hialeah, who live in Miami, who live in Coral Gables. You have people, you know, pillars of this community you met with them and spoke with them businessmen like carlos saladrigas sergio pino who received them in their house you've got people like uh, uh, mike fernandez who's one of our uh, community's billionaires they see this as an opportunity to make a difference in the future of cuba right. and i think it's a it's a smart move when well, your opponent moves in your direction mm-hmm. you should move in that direction former miami congressman joe garcia is a cuban-american democrat and an expert on cuba's mipimes or private sector congressman many thanks Thank you for having me, Tim. Finally on the roundup, Ms. Melissa Abril Dotel. Melissa Abril Dotel, a second grade teacher at North Beach Elementary School in Miami Beach, was recognized this week as the Miami-Dade County's Public Schools Teacher of the Year. As Dotel told WLRN's Kate Payne, her students would be the happiest to hear the news. I know there's going to be screams and they're going to come to give me a big hug and it's going to be a lot for all of us. (laughs) In her 18 years in the classroom, Dotel has worked to make sure her students feel seen, heard, and celebrated. Now she gets to share that message across the district. I'm on a cloud right now. I'm so grateful and so honored to represent all these wonderful, inspirational teachers we have in Miami-Dade County Public Schools. Along with the title, Dotel got $3,500 and the keys to a new Toyota Corolla. Now she'll go on to compete to be Florida's Teacher of the Year, which is expected to be announced this summer. I'm Kate Payne in Miami. Dotel says she was inspired to go into teaching by her own childhood teachers who gave her the empathy, love, and care she needed to keep going after her mother died when she was a young girl. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. 
I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado.